Our reading this morning is Matthew 4, 23 to chapter 5, verse 2. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, good morning. We are uh, finally starting the Sermon on the Mount. Yeah, yeah yes. Um, uh, for those of you that are wooing, um, we've kind of been talking about this for a while. If you remember, we, were, uh, we did a series in Ecclesiastes, and um, the plan was to finish Ecclesiastes uh, and to go right into the Sermon on the Mount, because in a lot of ways, uh, what we, if you remember from Ecclesiastes, there was this refrain of uh, life under the sun, um, and really how, how much of Ecclesiastes was the negative kind of version of what we will look at, uh, Sermon on the Mount, really a life of flourishing, and the book of Ecclesiastes really is uh, a picture of, of a man who wasn't flourishing, who was seeking flourishing, um, but just really couldn't do that uh, in his own strength. And he comes to the conclusion that the only way that's going to happen is a life connected to God. Um, and then um, cancer happened. And so <laughs> uh, I was diagnosed with cancer. We kind of put a sermon on that. We felt like we should put that, that, that series kind of on hold. And... Uh, I, I think the guys, uh, you know, we were, we were talking about this, this, well, we'll do this kind of placeholder, uh, this series, uh, we're not sure how long it'll be, this Sermon of Ascent uh, series, but really felt like, actually, no, that, that actually worked out really well, and that was of the Lord, and kind of led us into this place of the Sermon on the Mount, and in, and in some ways, as, as the pilgrims kind of ascended to Jerusalem, um, so have we, and so here we are uh, with this sermon. Um, and it's something we've been looking forward to for, uh, for a while. It is one of the most kind of quoted from, um, famous kind of uh, pieces of literature, if we can even call it that. Um, it, it's quoted from, from Shakespeare in, in pop music. Um, you'll hear people who aren't even Christians, politicians, uh, kind of quoting from this sermon. And it's a sermon that we're going to look at and be in for the next four months. And so this will take us all the way up to the summertime. Um, and so uh, I'm excited for that. Um, although when we talk about this, even, even the, like when I say the word sermon, what kind of emotions come to you? Well, they kind of, I mean, does, does the word sermon carry positive or more negative kind of connotations with it, do you think? Even, even, even an elder on the front row is like, yeah, kind of negative, <laughs> right? Like the idea of a sermon um, kind of carries negative connotations. Why? Because it, it is a religious term, right? And our relationship with uh, religion in Northern Ireland especially is a weird relationship. 
right? We even describe half our population as Catholic and half our population as Protestant rather than nationalist or loyal or whatever. We don't use political terms uh, uh, as much as we use religious terms, even here in Northern Ireland, to describe our population. So this idea of a sermon, um, of a monologue, of one person kind of standing with authority, telling us how we should do, how we should live and not live. Um, even that kind of format, right? This kind of monologue with authority. So we change things, right? Instead of sermons, we do talks. I'm going to give a talk instead of a sermon, right? Or even kind of the, um, uh, the demeanor. It's not, uh, I'm just going to share some ideas, uh, possibly even over coffee, right? And so, so a lot of times now, I'm serious. You think I'm joking, right? A lot of times you'll see, you know, maybe this is more in America than here, but you'll see uh, pastors and they might even be seated with a little cup of coffee. We're just going to share some ideas, just have a little talk. Um, because the idea of a sermon and preaching um, just has kind of negative connotations to it, um, I apologize if you're new. I'll have to drink some. I have no saliva glands at the minute. One of the uh, great things about curing your cancer is they kill other things, including saliva glands. So, so we have this idea of a sermon. Um, but my friend Reuben Hunter pointed something out to me. Despite all of this, despite all of our kind of negative connotations with that, um, things like TED Talks are soaring in popularity. Hundreds of thousands of downloads um, the, the, of people, we want to hear uh, someone kind of monologue and give us ideas, ways to live, um, uh, good ways, to, uh, better ways to live. Um, we have Enneagram coaches, right? So if you're a seven, this is how you should live. Or if you're a four, this is how you should live. Um, or even people like Jordan Peterson, soaring in popularity, like literally millions of downloads on YouTube. Um, his book is 12 Rules for Life. Like literally rules that you should live by. Um, and, and his idea is that if you'll live by these rules, you'll, you'll, you'll have a better life. And millions of people have downloaded his, his videos on YouTube. And so despite this idea of like preaching and, and sermon, um, I think we all want someone to speak with authority because we recognize that just we're not the measure of all things in and of ourselves, are we? We recognize that we're going to need help beyond ourselves. And is this sermon that Jesus, that we're going to be in for the next three, four months, is it relevant to us? Is it a relevant kind of sermon? Well, we're going to cover things like anger, lust, divorce, promise keeping, retaliation, how to deal with our enemies, um, money, anxiety, wise living, all things that I think Literally, you could go onto YouTube and probably find videos of people talking. Um, Jordan Peterson might have something to say about these things. Whoever your kind of expert du jour is, um, I think you could find the relevance of all of these things. And so, here we are in Matthew. Um, and let us just read this kind of, let us go through this because um, we're, this is kind of the preamble, if you will, into the Sermon on the Mount. We're actually, today is really kind of an introduction to the series, so we're not going to really get into the meat and potatoes of the Sermon on the Mount. We'll do that next week. We'll start that. But there's a lot, um, there's a lot of things that we kind of need to know before we get into the sermon that will help us understand the sermon better. Um, and so the, some of those things we're not going to be able to see um, right from the sermon itself. 
So we see here in verse 23 of, of chapter 4, um, and he, that is Jesus, went throughout all of Galilee teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. That's an important phrase, the gospel of the kingdom. Matthew is writing um, his gospel primarily to Jews, um, and so he's going to use this phrase, the kingdom of heaven, um, instead of some of the other gospels will use the phrase, the kingdom of God. Um, but Jews would never say the name of God. They would have other names. And so Matthew writes the kingdom of heaven. But these phrases are inter- interchangeable, okay? And so he goes about teaching, that's in, seeing what he's done, but also healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So as you would imagine, his fame spread throughout all of Syria. They brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, paralytics, and Jesus heals them, casts the demons out. And great crowds followed him from Galilee, the Decapolis, from Jerusalem, Judea, and even from beyond the Jordan. And seeing the crowds, he went up on a mountain. So so Jesus' response to this massive crowd of people is to go up on a mountain. Now, part of that is logistics, right? He's going to, he wants to be able to, he wants people to be able to hear him. And, And as I'm kind of on an elevated stage, part of that is just primarily so you in the back can hear me and see me. And so what Jesus does is get to an elevated place where everybody will be able to, to see him and hear him. But there's something more uh, that's going on here. Um, seeing the crowds, he went up on a mountain, and he sat down, and his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying. So he goes up, he sits down, and he opens his mouth. These are all really important things um, that we're going to need to take a look at. There are several motifs um, that Matthew's going to use um, throughout his, his gospel. And he wants his, again, mostly Jewish readers um, to see some things. And there are important things that you and I need to see as well. And the greatest of these kind of motifs, the greatest is this idea that Jesus is the fulfillment of Moses and his ministry of revelation to God's people. This is um, from Jonathan Pennington's um, book, The Sermon on the Mount and Human Flourishing, which is a... a, a phenomenal book. He wants people to see that what Jesus is doing is really the fulfillment of Moses and Moses' ministry of revelation to God's people. In other words, we could say that Jesus is kind of the newer and better Moses. Um, And this idea um, is being introduced to us here in the first couple verses. So we see he went up. Um, If you um, have if you've been a Christian for any amount of time, if you've sat under sermons for any amount of time, if you've read your Bible through, you'll understand that mountains are a big deal in the Bible. Um, whenever you see a mountain in a Bible, pay attention. Something important is probably going to happen or something significant. And over and over again, um, these mountains are being depicted as holy, holy places. And this is true even today. So if you'll try, like um, I've been to Thailand and um, they have temples, you know, down in the cities and valleys and things like that. But over and over again, if you'll travel throughout the country, up on mountains, they have um, big, massive statues. I mean, you can see from miles and miles away of Buddha and these kind of, you know, holy places. 
Um, one in particular was called um, the, a tiger temple or, or temple of the tigers. And I was like, that sounds pretty cool. So I'm going to go and, and see that. Well, it was like 1,300 steps to the top. And I'm like, no big deal. I'll just walk up those steps. And literally, it took me like two and a half hours to do it. And what I didn't realize is walking that many steps would mean I couldn't walk for like the next two days because my calves were just completely, I just didn't think that through. Um, but when, you, when I got to the top, um, sure enough, there's, you know, a temple there to, to Buddha, and the, and the views are spectacular and, and all of this, right? So there's, and there is something about being on a mountaintop and the views, the vista that you have from there. There is a sense of like, wow, that's beautiful. It's, there's something that happens up there, isn't there? Moses, as we, if you remember, also ascended a mountain, and from there he taught the gathered people of God. And as we'll see more clearly in the coming weeks, Jesus is presented as the new and final arbiter of God's law. So functioning as the new and final Moses. He's ascending, he's sitting, and he's teaching. All of these denoting this kind of scene that befits these weighty words that Jesus is going to deliver. Um, the Sermon on the Mount is, is often um, considered really Jesus' manifesto. Um, what really kind of encapsulates what it means to live the way of Jesus. And on this mountain, again, like Moses, there's a a revelation that happens. Now, the difference is Moses is kind of this in-between person, right? God speaks to Moses, and then Moses speaks to the people. But when Jesus sits down, when Jesus speaks, Scripture comes out. So, um, if you'll read, and, you, and I would encourage you to, go back and read the first four chapters of Matthew, everything proceeding up to what we've read today. Um, also, uh, if you were a Jew especially, um, you, would, uh, you would read these and, and you would think of Moses. Um, Pennington points out again, here are some of the things that are similar um, between Moses and Jesus. Both had dreams connected to their births. There was a slaughter of children um, in which they both are miraculously spared as infants. Um, a, a slaughter of children meant really meaning to, um, to kill both of them. Both flee from a land only to return later at God's direction. Both are tempted in the wilderness. Both spend 40 days and 40 nights fasting. And both pass through the Jordan. Um, there's all of this imagery that Matthew um, is showing us that's going to give significance and weightiness to who Jesus is as the Messiah that the Jews should have been looking for, but also in the words that he will say um, once he sits down and opens his mouth. And that's the second thing we see, that he sits down on this mountainside. This is part of the regular depiction in Matthew as a teacher. So for us, we kind of do it backwards. You all sit down and the teacher stands up, right? Even when you go to, to school or, or you go to hear a lecture, whatever it may be, generally you're seated and the teacher is standing. But in Jewish culture, it was the other way around. The teacher sat um, and there was something in his sitting um, that gave authority, him as the teacher. Um, but there's also a prelude. There's also what Matthew is wanting us to see, this future sitting down that Jesus will do. Um, Jesus will sit down again with authority as he sits down on the throne, as he sits down at the right hand of the Father. And then thirdly, he opens his mouth. 
He opens his mouth. Now, this phrase, opens his mouth, I mean, it's kind of weird. Like, you're like, well, duh, like you have to open your mouth to teach. Like, why, why this opens his mouth? Um, but it's a phrase that's used over and over again. But here in particular, um, Matthew is wanting us to see Jesus sitting down and Jesus opening his mouth is different than any other rabbi that might have sat down. So Jesus ascends a mountain, sits down, opens his mouth. Now, if you have your Bible, turn to Psalm chapter 78. Um, So Psalm 78, there's something that's happening here that's more significant. It's not that Jesus had to just open his mouth to talk. Now remember the Psalms were written way before Jesus uh, was on the scene. And some of these Psalms are prophetic in nature. And so let's just look at the first two verses, um, or even the first three. Give ear, O my people, to the teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. Verse 2, I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from old, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. So I will open my mouth in a parable. Um, And Jesus will um, speak in parables. Uh, Not not so much in the Sermon on the Mount. There's a a few different kind of... um, Times that Jesus speaks. Um, another one that we find in Matthew um, is in Matthew 13. So turn to Matthew 13. And in verse 34, Jesus has been speaking, uh, another sermon, if you will. Um, but he's just been doing it all in parables. He's just been giving them parables. Um, And he does this intentionally. Look at verse 34. And all these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. This is pointing back to Psalm 78. And it's to fulfill Psalm 78. The person Um, that is being referred to in Psalm 78, I will open my mouth in a parable, is actually Jesus. And so what is Matthew doing again? Um, Jesus goes up, he sits down, and he opens his mouth. He's trying to give us clues as to who this person is, as to who this teacher is. That this is actually the Messiah, the one that you would have been waiting for. The one into which all of the Old Testament is pointing to. And going up on the mountain is significant as well. Look at Isaiah. If you have, uh, again, turn to the book of Isaiah. And turn to um, chapter 40. Chapter 40, verse 9. Go up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Now that's that's a... um, a reference to a person, right? Who is this herald of good news? Go up to a high mountain, on, uh, um, O Zion. Herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem. Herald of good news. Lift it up. Fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Isaiah, the prophet, is foreseen going up onto a high mountain. And who is going up onto a mountain? This herald of good news, lifting his voice, opening his mouth. 
Look at Isaiah chapter 2, verse 3. Sorry, I'm using a real Bible here, so it might take me longer than you on the digital. Um, Isaiah chapter 2, verse 3. Sorry. And it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of mountains and shall be lifted up above all hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations. He shall decide disputes of many people. Here Isaiah, again, is prophesying of someone who will go up in the latter days up to the mountain and he will teach the people his ways. For out of Zion shall go, he says, the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So Moses comes and he goes up on the mountain, and what does he do? He comes down and he teaches the people. He gives them the law. But Moses isn't only the lawgiver, is he? He's also their redeemer, their deliverer, their savior. He literally rescued them out of slavery, rescued them out of bondage. And then he brings them out of bondage, and he gives them the law, a way that they're to obey, right? But Jesus plays this role um, not just for Jews, but for all who will repent and believe. He is the better, the final redeemer, deliverer, savior. And not just for the Jews, but for all. Right? And he comes in to teach us his ways. This is the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is um, extremely practical. It really is a way to live. And so who is this for? Who is this sermon for? Well, who is listening? You have two groups of people, don't we? We have the crowds, and then we also have his disciples. So you have both groups of people that are there listening to him. Crowds and his disciples. And Jesus is explaining them how to live. The Sermon on the Mount. And hopefully people moving from crowd to disciple. There's this dual audience. And so the Sermon on the Mount is a call, in a sense, to be a disciple, to walk and follow the way of Jesus. Tom Schreiner de- describes a disciple of Jesus this way. And so if you're a Christian today, listen up. Does this describe you? He says, disciples have a distinct profile over and against the world. They admit that they are poor in spirit. They are peacemakers and merciful. They endure persecution. They do not hate those who mistreat them. They are, not, they are not marked by lust and abuse of women. They love their enemies. They do not practice their religion for the praise of others. They trust God for their physical needs. They do not judge others. They communicate their, dif- um, their differences from the world and shine as witnesses in a dark world. And this is what Jesus is calling us to in the Sermon on the Mount. There is a beautiful way to live And it's a way that leads to flourishing. Right? So this is Jesus' description. 
and the way that we would live. And if we'll live in this kind of way, it will lead us to a life of flourishing. And yet, most of our churches are in decline. Why is that? If Jesus gives us a way to live that leads to life, that leads to flourishing, that leads to this description that was just kind of described here, why are most of our churches in decline? It might be partly because people know Christians and come to the conclusion, well, I'm, I'm just like you. You're just like me. And so in my pursuit of happiness, in my pursuit of, of finding joy and meaning and purpose and a life of flourishing, if that's, if that's my pursuit, this is what I'm looking for. And then I look to the church, and the only thing that I really see different is you've just added a bit of religion to that. Why in the world would I want to do that? You're, you're really pursuing it in the same way that I am, except now I have to go to church on Sundays. And then it becomes this kind of just real lame kind of thing. And that's not what God has wanted. God has always wanted a holy people. And this word holy just means set apart, right? Uh, something that is set apart for a distinct use. And that's what God has wanted, a holy people, a people that are set apart, a people that are distinctively different. So he says this in Leviticus chapter 20, verse 22. He says, you shall therefore keep all my statutes and all my rules and do them that the land where I am bringing you to live may not vomit you out. And you shall not walk in the customs of the nations that I'm driving out before you. For they did all these things, and therefore I detested them. So the nations were living in a way that God detested. He drove them out and gave the land to his people. But he said, but I don't want you to live the way that they lived. Verse 24, but I've said to you, you shall inherit their land, and I will give it to you to possess a land flowing with milk and honey. I am the Lord your God who has separated you from these peoples. You shall be holy to me. Why? For I, the Lord, am holy and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. And so God has separated out his people so that they would be his and that they would live distinctly from the nations around them. And this is what God has always wanted, right? A people to whom and through whom that he would reveal himself. A holy and set-apart people. And so what happens? Israel comes in. They take the land. They obey the Lord. And they flourish. And everyone lives happily ever after. Right? Wrong. <laughs> That's not what happens. They come in. They take over the land. And it's not long before they start looking around to the nations around them and go, man, we're not like them at all. And these nations hate us. And maybe we should just be like them. So Psalm 106 says, but they mixed with the nations and learned to do as they did. They served their idols, which became a snare to them. Right? So God puts them in a land and says, I'm going to give you some rules to obey. We all go, boo, we hate rules. We don't, want your, we don't want your 10 rules. It's not 12. God only gave 10. Um, we don't want your 10 rules. We want to be like these people over here. And it says it was a snare to them. Listen to verse 37. What happened? They sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons. 
They poured out innocent blood. What blood? The blood of their sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan. And the land was polluted with blood. And you're like, wow, that escalated quickly. We went from rejecting God's rules. We want to live like the nations around them. And for them, that meant sacrificing their own kids. Their own sons and daughters. And we're like, that is bonkers, isn't it? Man, I'm glad we don't do that today. But, 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 but we do. We do the same thing. <laughs> do we not? Do we not sacrifice our sons and daughters to the demons of, I'm just not ready to have kids yet, or just wasn't convenient? It's just not the right time. I didn't have contraception with me. Do we not do the same thing? Do we not say what they said in Ezekiel 20? Let us be like the nations, like the tribes of the countries, and worship wood and stone. Do we not worship this wood and stone? Well, for us it might be metal and electronics or whatever it is, but we worship really the same gods. We pursue Comfort, security, happiness, how to deal with our relationships in the same way that the world does often. And then the world looks at it and says, well, you're doing the same thing that I am. Why would I add a bunch of religion on top of that? Why would I add a bunch of religious rules when ultimately and fundamentally you're just like me? So we should be just like them. God has always wanted people to himself who would live distinctively different. And this is what we're going to look at for the next four months. How do we live distinctively different? What is Jesus calling us to? But we'll find, even in the first, it starts off, right, this section that we often call the Beatitudes. He opened his mouth and he taught them, blessed are Poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. And this word blessed really can be translated into happiness. And and I don't have time to do it this morning. But really can be translated into flourishing. Flourishing are those that are poor in spirit. Flourishing are those who mourn. Flourishing are the meek. But we would find the way that we actually live leads to a life of flourishing. So here we have Jesus with his 12 disciples. Really, again, as we're looking at as a Jewish person representing the 12 tribes of Israel, and he brings a new law of sorts, the law of Christ, the law of the new covenant. This is how to live a life that leads to happiness and flourishing. Now, as we close, um, or begin to, uh, what I, what I, we need to make a distinction here um, very quickly because it's very, very easily, especially in Northern Ireland, to go, okay, cool. All right, Jesus, let's do this. You're going to give me all of this, all of these ways to live, all of these kind of rules. I'm up for it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to grab myself up by the bootstraps, and I'm going to live exactly how you tell me to live so that I can then be accepted by God, right? 
No, 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 no. That's not, that's not what's happening here. So there's a distinction that we need to make between moralism and morality. One, we're not so much uh, in favor for. Actually, we're against that. God hates it. And one's a good thing. So moralism. Moralism is a list of behaviors um, to conform to, that, uh, to be accepted by God so that I can be in with the rest of the good guys. That's moralism, right? I, I, I have this checklist mentality, and I'll just uh, I'll obey all these kind of rules, and if I obey all the kind of rules by doing that, then, then uh, God will accept me, and I get to be in with all the rest of the good guys, in the good guy club, in this kind of good living club. Do this, and God will bless you, Right? God comes and he gives us moral law, right? We're going to keep this moral law then and, um, and God will bless us. Now, there is in a sense in which if we live by God's ways, it does lead to blessing and flourishing. But we don't live um, by those rules so that we would be accepted by God. We do it in a different kind of way. Exodus 19, now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now, notice what God is doing. You will be a kingdom of priests. What do priests do? They bring people to God, right? They, They bring people to God. So if you'll live by my covenant you will, in a way, be distinct from the nations around you, the people around you. And in doing so, you will um, bring people to me. That you would point the other nations to God. How? By how they live distinctly living from the other nations. Okay, so we just read that. Okay, well, Exodus 19, 5 through 6. If I obey your voice and keep your covenant, then I'll be your treasured possession among peoples. You're like, well, that sounds like do this and you'll be accepted. Well, we only started in verse 5. The verse right before that, verse 4, reads this way. (laughs) You yourselves have seen what I did, what God did. This is God speaking. What I did to the Egyptians. What did you do to the Egyptians? What did you do to free yourself from the Egyptians? Nothing. I did that. And how I bore you on eagle's wings. And how I brought you to myself. How did you get yourself out of slavery? You didn't. I did that. How did you get from being uh, uh, chained up, slaves, no, no choices to yourself? How did you get to me? I did that. I, I, I bore you to myself. And that's how salvation works. God does it. And you don't do anything. God rescues the Israelites, and once they are saved, once they are redeemed, then he says, live this way. And in doing so, you'll draw other people to me. Do you see the difference between moralism and morality? Moralism is thinking, if I do these things, then I'll save myself. If I do these things, then I'll be worthy and I can be accepted by God. God says, no, that's not how it works. You're not worthy at all. There's nothing you could ever do 
to rescue and save yourself. You are dead in your sins, which means that you're actually dead. I will make you alive in Christ through the death and resurrection of Jesus. I'll make you alive. Now that you're alive, now that you're mine, now that you're a Christian, if you'll live this way, one, you'll, you, you yourself will flourish. But you'll also, in so doing, draw other people to me. Other people, as First Peter says, why do you have this kind of hope when I don't have this hope? Why do you find rest and I'm just running like a hamster on a, on a, on a wheel? And thus we have the opportunity to actually point them to the hope that we have. So don't see the Sermon on the Mount as some kind of spiritual ladder that you climb to get God's favor or become a Christian. There's only one person who could actually live out the demands of the Sermon on the Mount, and that's the one who gave it, Jesus himself. This isn't, this is important for us to to remember, this isn't just a sermon, it's a silhouette. It's a silhouette of Jesus. It's going gonna, it's gonna to show us what Jesus is like and thus what we too should be like. Martin Luther says this, uh, the great reformer about the Sermon on the Mount. He says, the Sermon on the Mount says nothing about how we become Christians, but only about the works and fruit that no one else can do unless he is already a Christian and is in a state of grace. The Sermon on the Mount is a description of what Christians should look like. So as we go through this, if your, li- if your life looks nothing like this, then we have to ask ourselves, am I really a Christian? Now that doesn't mean that we'll, we don't struggle. It doesn't mean that we're nailing this perfectly because we can't. But if it doesn't bear any resemblance to our life, then we have to stop and ask some hard questions. This way of Jesus can only be lived out by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's only by the empowering of the Spirit that we have any hope and chance um, to live this way. But Jesus actually says, no, that's, that's why the Spirit has come. What did Jesus, whenever he told his disciples, it's good that I leave because if I don't leave, then I won't send the, how did he describe the Holy Spirit? The, the helper, right? He's there to help. He's there to help us. He's actually there to help us obey and live and empower us to live a Christian life. We try to live this without the Holy Spirit, it will only crush you. Same as the law that Moses gave. The law was meant to just kind of crush you. You just can't do that. You can never live up to the law. Jesus has to come and actually fulfill the law, which we'll see here and we'll talk about. He comes and he fulfills the law on our behalf. And in some ways, the Sermon on the Mount is the same way. You'd have no hope. To, you wouldn't even get out of the Beatitudes without the help of Jesus. So moralism, we're not into that at all. Morality, actually living, there are some things that are right and wrong, ways to live. So Jesus says, live this way, don't live this way. Um, morality, yes, There are good ways to live. So Jesus is going to preach this sermon. Will we actually hear it? This is important. Look at the very end. We're going to skip ahead to the end of the sermon. 
In the very end, in in chapter 7, verse 24, Jesus says these words. This is how he finishes the sermon. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain comes, the storm comes, and the house survives. Verse 26, and everyone who hears these words of mine and does, uh, does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the storm comes, and you know what happens. The house, the foundation just gets washed away. It just can't stand. And so this leaves us. Will we actually follow and obey Jesus? As we look at his commands, as we look at this description of what it's like to be like Christ, will we actually follow that? You have two audiences here, right? You have the crowd. But as we'll see, the crowd is fascinated with Jesus. They're interested in Jesus. They like those miracles. That's pretty cool. But eventually we see they just dwindle away. They're not actually, not really interested. Once Jesus starts talking about eating his flesh and drinking his blood, they're like, no, that's, I'm good. I'm done. Right? Jesus starts saying some, some hard things. And the crowds eventually kind of dwindle away. It's his disciples who stick. And even them, it was close. Right? Even then... Jesus has to pull back and say, now you're mine. The disciples obey. They become wise. They admit that they can't do it on their own. They have to repent, as it were. They have to admit their own um, weakness, their own lack of any resource within themselves, that all of their, even their best efforts are like filthy rags. They're just not... Not good enough, and we have to admit that. And in that admission, Jesus comes, rescues us, makes us his, empowers us with the Holy Spirit, and it's that Holy Spirit then that helps them live a life of obedience, a life of flourishing. And this is what we're going to look at over the coming months. But I want us to know and remember that we don't live this to please God in any kind of way. This is really what we do as Christians. And so if you're not a follower of Jesus today, you've never done that process that I just described of repentance, of admitting, hey, listen, my best efforts are, are kind of sinful on my own. I actually want your help. I want the help of the Holy Spirit in my life to lead me on this path of flourishing a way to live that leads to life and not one that leads to death. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a God who even cared enough to come and open your mouth. You're not a God who just kind of created us as as some kind of uh, project or toy that you just kind of got disinterested in. But you come, you take on flesh, you come, you open your mouth, and you lead us into a life of flourishing. You lead us into a life of happiness, of joy. And Father, I just pray that you would give us um, the strength of your Holy Spirit just to admit our need for you this morning. 
are, are, to confess that, that we just can't live a life that's pleasing to God on our own. That we're actually going to need um, Jesus himself to help us walk the path of Jesus. And so, Father, I pray for those of us that are Christians here today that you would just continue, um, that your spirit would just continue to reveal areas in our life um, in which we're not following you, our life isn't flourishing, we're not finding joy and happiness, we're finding discontentment, struggle. Father, I just pray that you would just give us um, grace and eyes to be able to see, ears to be able to hear. Father, we pray even that um, for those that might not be followers of Jesus. Give them ears to hear what your spirit has to say to them today. Do what only you can do, Father, even in this moment. I ask this in your name. Amen. Let's stand together. We're going to continue to worship um, the Lord this morning. We're going to do that. Um, if you're a Christian, if you are a follower of Jesus, go ahead and stand. Everybody stand. Start confusing. We're going to come to the table. Um, we're going to take bread and we're going to take wine and we're going to remember what Jesus has done on our behalf. That process of I will actually rescue you out of comes through the death and resurrection of Jesus. His body broken for us. His blood shed for us. And so come um, and hear the good news of Jesus once again.